don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast, and I am your host, Hansa Bergwall. And today we have a very special guest for you, Adam Caton Holland. And he's a comedian. Uh, he was named as one of Esquire's top 25 comedians to our comics to watch. Uh, he has a hit uh, show called Those Who Can't, which is sort of a skit-based show about uh, high school teachers who are kind of unruly, and it's hilariously funny. And we're talking to him today about a memoir he wrote called Tragedy Plus Time. Basically, he has had a sister who struggled with mental illness, and uh, he walked into the room and was the one that found her body after she committed suicide, right when his career as a comic was starting to take off. And so we talk about that. We talk about how he found laughter again after the worst thing that can happen in a family probably happened. Uh, and we talked about, you know, how you write what is basically a love letter to your family after an event like that and still live and flourish uh, and put things that are unthinkable into perspective. And I mean, these, this is exactly why we do this podcast. We want to try to talk about exactly the things that people don't talk about enough. And in this world, you know, we, it's, it's a more common occurrence, uh, mental illness, addiction, our loved ones hurting themselves than, uh, than we talk about. So I think it's important that we talk about it here. And who better than a comic to help us lighten the mood a little bit while we go into these deeper waters. Uh, there was one thing he asked me not to ask him for this interview, which was about that moment when he walked into the room where he found his sister's body, uh, which I totally respect. Uh, but he does write about it in his book, Tragedy Plus Time. And he writes about it beautifully and honestly. And it was a part in the book that, you know, I just started crying like a baby when I read it. And uh, so if you want to read that I highly recommend getting the book because uh, you won't hear about it in this podcast. And I think it's it's definitely worth worth reading it just to put this kind of experience in perspective. And the last thing I'll say about this episode is we do manage to have fun. He is a comic. We do manage to keep life in perspective and it is an enjoyable listen, even though the topic is pretty heavy. So without further ado, Adam Caton Holland. Thank you so much, Adam, for joining us today. How are you doing? Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So, of course, as we were just saying, this is a time that we're going to be talking about your tragic comic memoir, uh, Tragedy Plus Time, which means, and I just read the book, so I can tell you that means that you laugh and cry when you read it, both fully. Do you want to tell me a little bit about what made you decided you needed to get this story into a book. You know, honestly, it was something that I lived through, obviously, and it was painful and and just complex. And I, you know, I'm a stand-up comic, but I'm also a writer type. So it, it just felt like something I needed to process through writing. I wasn't talking about it on stage. I didn't feel comfortable talking about it on stage. And so as I kind of talk about it in the book, I, I just sort of wrote in this burst about 
what happened just like and I, it was that was sort of an essay and I, it was you know it's the very vainglorious artist being like I just got to get it out of me but for me it was like truly a process of getting it out of me through writing and I published that on my website and, and it sort of exploded and I started writing a few other things because it just felt good it was it was more therapeutic than any therapy I was going to and then off of some of that a lit agent found me and he was like you need to write a book about this and I was like oh yeah I guess so I mean, I've always wanted to be a writer, and I've always wanted to write a book. I never in a million years imagined it would be this, but uh, it's just, it's been very therapeutic, so I was like, yeah, I think that'll help me even further, and, and I did. So, just for our listeners, can you tell us the story just from the, the bird's eye view of what uh, this memoir is about? Well, this memoir is about my life and my little sister's life, who she took her life six years ago. And we were very close growing up. I have an older sister as well. It's Anna's two years older than me. Lydia's four years younger than me. So we're all in the same range. And we're just very sort of close, intelligent, really kind of ideal family situation. And the book is sort of a lot about how I think mental illness can strike anywhere. And it doesn't have to be in these, you know, I don't know what language I can say in your podcast, but like effed up situation. You can say anything you want on this podcast. It's about facing the tough, deep truths of life. Yeah, I mean, like even in these ideal, I, I think my family, I refer to them in the book a couple of times, like the magnificent Kate and Holland. And I think it's this sort of ideal family uh, that anyone would really hope for and, and want to be a part of. And so out of that, that Lydia kind of, took this dark turn at the end is is what the book's about. So it's about mental illness and Lydia's death and my career sort of taking off right during that point and sort of choosing not to throw in the towel, but to keep pursuing things, choosing light over dark, I suppose. Yeah. And, you know, obviously this is a book about suicide and you speak frankly and a lot of real talk about that. But, you know, I found myself in a lot of the book kind of, like it felt like a love letter to your family and that pride you have in them really came through that even with a suicide in the family, you're proud of all of them. And that, that part came through and I'm wondering like, are people surprised by that when you have this kind of story that you can speak that way about, about your life? Yeah. You know, I think, and I love, thank you. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Like I, it is a love letter to my family and to Lydia and, and Lydia was exceptional and amazing and weird and funny. And I didn't just want to like be like, and here's the story of how my sister died. I wanted to be like, here's the story of how my sister lived. And obviously it gets dark, but it's also a story of my acceptance of what she did. And that was a whole painful journey, but it's kind of about choosing to realize a mental illness is something out of her control, our control. And B, that if that's how bad it was for her and that in her throes of mental illness was the only way she could see out, then I got to respect her for it. I can't just be, I can be mad. I can be, I can be, you know, wishing she'd made other choices, but I I can't just, you got to put that aside and remember your sister beyond that. The 26 years of awesomeness not the two years of, like, dark chaos. 
Yeah, and that was the thing that I really appreciated about the book is, you know, this was about, you know, everything you appreciated and had gratitude for when she was here. Do you want to share a story about Lydia, something that you remember that, you know, is either in the book or not in the book that, you know, is one of those moments where you're like, wow, that was her. I mean, honestly, not in the book, but very, wouldn't be surprised that anybody in the book was just, I remember like, you know, I'm a stand-up comic and I have a TV show and bridging that gap was my friends and I making a bunch of sketches, just like sketch videos on the weekends for free, trying to like get attention and be seen. And I remember filming one in a park during winter in Denver and uh, Lydia came up to like help. She just came up to sort of be a grip or whatever. And, you know, there's like lows just two guys in a camera, but we were trying to make it look good. So Lydia's there helping, just doing errands. And like we finish it and we've been shooting in the snow for like three hours, we're freezing. And uh, Lydia and I are about to leave and we saw this goose in the park with like fishing wire tied around its leg. And I mean, cut to me and Lydia for the next four hours on this literal wild goose chase, trying to like capture this goose, take it to a rescue center. And we, we never did, we never got it. We like almost had it. We had it underneath a jacket and it like shot out and, and you know, it, but it was just very Lydia. Like I, my hands are literally freezing. I've been shooting outside for four hours and she's like, there's a goose that's injured. We got to go help it. And I was like, yep. All right. And it was just kind of non-negotiable with her. It's like, yeah, that's what we're going to be spending the next till it got dark, you know, and that's just very Lydia being there to support me on my thing. And then being like, oh, also we got to go help this like lesser injured creature not lesser but you know a goose in a park and there was uh i don't know that, that i can't tell you how many times we'd be driving somewhere and be at an intersection lydia just bolt out the car because she'd see a stray dog and it was just she cared about the small injured creatures of the world very deeply that's a beautiful story the uh, the wild goose chase to save the goose yeah it sounds like yeah. the woman you wrote about well well come back to this story in a second but for briefly let's let's talk about uh those who can't because sure i actually saw my first couple episodes uh while i was reading your book because i figured i should you know uh watch it um and yeah. it's really really funny Dang. it wasn't available on any of the streaming ones that i had so i, I had to shell out like 2.99 for the first episode and then i shelled out a few more because it was so good so Oh man, thank you. Well, the the availability for, of its streaming is the bane of my existence. So thank you for buying it and watching it. I appreciate that. It was worth it, and I think what I really liked about it was, um, you know, it's about high school teachers. So I thought I'd seen that show or that movie a thousand times before, but it wasn't like any of them. It didn't even really feel like Hollywood or anything like that. It had its totally new sensibility that was like rougher, darker, funnier and yet totally well-meaning. Uh, how, how did that all come about? That rules, I'm so glad you liked it. Um, me and, and two other Denver comedians, we refer to ourselves as the Grawlicks, that was our troupe, uh, Ben Roy and Andrew Orvidal. We just started making sketch videos. This was in you know early 2000s, it wasn't as ubiquitous as it is now, and we were just kind of the alt-comedy kids in Denver. And so we started making these sketch videos and just getting better and better and better, and we made a web series, and we, sort of developed the personas that you see in our show and got pretty good at, at you know, acting on camera with one another in, in this world. And then people started paying attention to that. And they're like, you should write a script. Uh, some Hollywood producer wrote us and was like, you should, you should write a script. And we at that point had already 
had managers and stuck our toes in Hollywood and stuff. But we're like, yeah, we should. So we just wrote that. And I mean, I'll give you the cliff notes. Amazon gave us money to shoot a pilot back when they were just getting into programming. We shot a pilot for 50,000 in Denver. It's really funny. Amazon paid us to write six more scripts and they dropped us. No. A year later, True TV <laughs> resurrected it. And now we just uh, got season three in the can. It's coming out um, in the fall. So like, it's been this crazy success story of just three dipshits from Denver like trying to figure it out. And uh, it's been a dr like a literal dream come true. It's it's crazy. I'm so proud of our show. It's it's dark and funny and very Simpsons, you know, golden era of the Simpsons uh, heavy. Ref that, that was a lot of our favorite stuff. And we're all high school movie nerds. So I think it's got a lot of good influences in there. Yeah. Tell me about uh, your character on the show. Oh, he's such a douche. All of our characters are the worst examples of ourselves, like the worst qualities of ourselves. We just exaggerated. So my guy's kind of pretentious, but he's very insecure and wants all the kids to think he's like the coolest, even though he's just a late 30s loser at a public high school. But yeah, he's the Spanish teacher, Lauren Payton, and he teaches like the Queen's Spanish to Mexican-American students. He like doesn't accept their form of Spanish. He's teaching them vosotros. So that's the type of guy that Lauren is. Yeah, well, it, it's, a, it's a pretty funny show. And uh, the book actually opens with the story of, you know, you getting the green light, and I guess the check to write your pilot. Yeah. Right, just weeks after the tragic event where your sister took her life. And yeah, I, I have to ask, like, how did you summon the whatever it was to be professionally that funny? Uh, at that time? Well, I mean, I just, I had discussed it in the book some, but as you probably know, but I think, um, so Lydia was very integral in my comedy growing up. Like she and I would riff as kids. And then when she kind of got wind of what my friends and I were doing in Denver, she kind of, a big part of her moving home was to be a part of it. She was really into it. So she would help run the door at Grolic shows. She would help us film sketches. She was, you know, she was integral and just always around. And so then I, I got this opportunity and it became a new face at Montreal's Just for Laughs competition, which in the comedy business is like you're drafted into the NFL. It would be akin to that. And so I got that, kicked butt. All of Hollywood's like, hey, you're awesome, kid. And then three days later, she killed herself. And so it was like this crazy career trajectory. Everything I'd always hoped for just cut off at the head and all of a sudden I didn't give a fuck about comedy or those who can't or any of it but you know after that happens you just get punched in the face and knocked down and then a couple weeks later you wake you stand up clumsily and you're like well what now and my family really encouraged me to do it and you know it's definitely one of those like hey Lydia would want you to do it even though at that point I was so angry at Lydia, I didn't really care about that logic. But I don't know. I just went to Hollywood to, to honestly give my family something to talk about besides Lydia's death. It was just new. It's a, it was just new stories if I went to Hollywood and tried to sell a show. And then I did sell a show. And then it was like, yeah, it was just I, I, I was numb and, and fucked up and damaged. But I had a job to do. So I just sort of buried myself in that show, man. Does uh, does laughing help? Yeah, absolutely. And for me, it was very encouraging to 
see that I could laugh. Like, you know, stand up is so navel gazing and you're up there talking about your life and my life was shattered. So I didn't want to do stand up. Like it just felt like to get on stage and like talk about this every night just felt like why. But this pilot was like something different. I was playing a character. It wasn't just the Adam Caton Holland show. It was my two friends as well. It was our effort. So it felt like something that I could like forget about that in for a little bit. And you know, the pilot we shot in Denver, it shot it in one week. It was like to this day, having done three seasons, that pilot was the most singularly rewarding creative experience I've ever had. Like Amazon didn't come out. There was nobody overseeing us. We were just making a TV show, having never done it. And uh, it was it was such a cool week. And then the product was good enough that they were like, yeah, let's make some more of these before eventually dropping it, but whatever it was. So that experience was like killer. It was just, it was very necessary. And then when it was over, I was like, oh, I'm still fucked up deeply. And then there was a lot of therapy and grief. But yeah, for that that time, it was really a godsend. It was something I needed to do. Yeah, I see that, you know, being there for your friends and your collaborators, getting out of your head, laughing a little bit. Totally. And not wanting to fuck it up. Like, I didn't want to drop the ball. It was very easy, and I had to fight the urge to just be like, because I had suffered from depression in college, and, and I kind of understood at points in my life the darkness that Lydia got to. But, and, and I was, it was very intriguing to just like go down that rabbit hole, and, and I could, I was, you know, not considering it, but like I felt feelings like I hadn't felt in years that I thought I had sort of squashed. And so I chose, I was like, I'm not going to blow this. Like, I'm not going to blow this opportunity. I've been working so hard for this. I'm not going to blow it. And so it was, it was interesting. I'm glad I was able to psychologically step up at least for a week. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the things I actually appreciated about your book is when you wrote about that year in college when, you know, you got to your own spot of despair and desolation and vandalism and all sorts of yeah, yeah. crazy stuff. <laughs> Yeah. And that, you know, it sounded like it helped you understand a little bit more how things could go off the rails. Said, I mean, watching Lydia go through it and being there for every step of it, it's impossible to understand. I realized how hers went where my went and then really eclipsed it. But I get how she got there. You know what I mean? I, I, so, yeah, it was. And I think, you know, there's mental illness and and a lot of people's lineage and families and depression. You know, the more I write about this, the more I talk about it, it's like, oh man, everybody's got some sort of way to relate to this. So it, I definitely had a way to relate with it to Lydia. Hey, this is Hansa Bergwald, your host. And Ian Thomas. We're the ones bringing you this week Rogue podcast. And uh, we had a great idea for another prize for the top tier of our Patreon, which is the I can't take anything in this tote with me when I go tote, which we're going to make. It is truly the most perfect tote for going from this world and into death and beyond. Yeah, you get to have your stuff and also be impermanent about it, uh, which is which is everything right now. So we would definitely need a certain number of you to sign up in order to like make it worth it to get the minimum order. So the best way to make this 
amazing tote a reality and be the coolest person toting anything before you know you can't tote anymore is to head over to wecroak.com uh and hit the become a patron button you could fill up your tote bag with books smartphones poisonous dark frogs anything you could imagine <laughs> how about just the books of all the wonderful guests we're having on this podcast because really all of these books that you know i've read to have these conversations are really good you know, Hansa, in that case, I think our supporters should uh, probably pony up for at least two totes in order to carry all these amazing books. <laughs> I can't take any of these books with me when I go tote. Now, uh, thank you for <laughs> bearing with us with our tote dreams. It's totally fun. And now back to our conversation. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, you know, so many people don't talk about these issues, but, you know, the number of Americans you know, touched by either mental illness in their family or addiction these days, which is, of course, another kind of mental illness where people, you know, often don't make it and do things they wouldn't otherwise. You know, there's there's a lot, there's a need for just, just like honest discussion of what it feels like when, you know, someone you love isn't well in the head. And that's what I tried to sort of do in this book was like, I told my editor and publisher, I was like, if you're expecting some sort of cheesy, all tied up in a nice little package, comedy saved my life during my dark time book, this ain't it. You know what I mean? I tried to sort of make it deliberately messy in the way that you feel either holding the hand of someone who's clinically depressed or in the fallout of the grief and how one day you're good and the next day you're not good. Like I just tried to sort of make it honest. Yeah, there's some there's some real talk in here. I'm going to quote a little paragraph of yours just because I think it's something people need to hear you say we were all so over it it was constant vigilance and it was trying that's the thing no one tells you about depression how exhausting it is to those around the person suffering how all-consuming it is and how selfish there's not a lot of how are you doing coming out of someone who's truly depressed their gloom is the focus their misery is all that gets discussed and you get sick of it there's only so much of someone else's despair uh, you can take. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's real. Like, that's true. And, and I, you know, when, when we look back on it all, we all wish we had done so much more. But we all did so much, you know. And I don't really know what more I could have done. Like, I, short of, like, sitting on her and being like, you're not taking yourself out. I don't really know what more I could have done. So I think for people, as you said, these stigmatizing all of this, whether it's telling people, hey, it's okay to say I'm suffering from depression, you don't need to hide it, but also telling people who are dealing with that person, hey, it's okay to be annoyed with that person. It's kind of annoying. They didn't ask you about your day at all, so it's like that, I think just every part of the of this disease is worth discussing and, and normalizing. My older sister and I would bitch about Lydia nonstop. It's like, God, this is exhausting, you know? and. Uh, that's part of the process. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what's your advice if someone that, you know, might be listening to this podcast is going through that with a loved one? I mean, unfortunately, my, my advice is, is do more. <laughs> I wish, I, you know, do more. Even as exhausted as you are, you think about where I'm at, you know, do more. And I, and I often wonder about, I've read stuff that say, you know, the late 20s is a particularly troublesome time for women in particular suffering from mental illness. 
And so I often wonder, it's like, if we had held Lydia's hand exhaustingly for the next five years, would she be through it? Who knows? You can make yourself crazy thinking about that stuff. But yeah, I, I always say, like, just do more. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, the strength will come somewhere. And uh... go out with your other friends, bitch about how exhausting it is, and then go back the next day and check in to commiserate, you know, be there. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really beautiful piece of advice and what else you know this is something people are going through like millions of americans right now especially with you know the opiate epidemic and all these sort of mental illness like there's a lot of stigma around these things and shame when someone commits suicide in a family how do you how did you deal with that and manage to laugh yeah i reached out to a dude here who works at the mental health center at denver because we do like grolics christmas shows when we're all home now because we've all diaspora to work on TV and blah, blah, blah. But we'll do like Christmas shows and raise money. And I was like, Mental Health Center Denver, let's give them money. And so I've been getting coffee with this guy, Adam, and he was he's saying, it, you know, the way to talk about mental illness has changed a lot. In like the 70s, it was like treatment. and like the 80s, it was like prevention. And currently the sort of lingo is well-being. And so it helps to think of mental illness as like, a spectrum. You're not sane. You're not insane. Everyone's somewhere in the middle. Uh, you know, I, you and I are probably, I'm doing okay currently. That could change. It's a, it's, it's just like physical health. And so to someone who's that clinically depressed, like know that it is a spectrum and it's not permanent. So you're down now, you'll be up later. You'll be down again. You'll be up later. It's just kind of like not a permanent state. I think that helps people, even though I know when you're depressed, it's myopic and you can't see beyond it. But just to know, it's like, hey, I've weighed 170 pounds. I've weighed 150 pounds. Like, it's just like your physical health. You can work on it. You can tweak it. You can change it. Yeah. The, uh, the We Grow Gap, which is the reason we're making this podcast, of course, uh, is inspired by a lot of uh, Buddhist and Stoic philosophy. And, you know, that sounds like a version of those old, you know, wisdoms of basically we're all diluted <laughs> to some extent and it takes a lot of work to see the world and ourselves clearly and you know for some of us the delusions get life-threatening uh, but you know to some degree we're all you know in a battle to see what's around us clearly and that you know it's it's not like you are or you aren't you know all of us are trying to do better and come up with what works right it, it, dude i love that and i like the basis of the podcast that's that's very cool but you know i also think like just like I was alluding to, no one ever gives anybody shit because they're working on their physical health. They're like, yeah, dude, go get healthy. You're jogging, that's killer. Like, you're eating better, good for you. So if you're working on your mental health, awesome. There's no stigma there. Like, you're working on your mental health. That's great. What does even one do to work on their mental health these days? <laughs> like, what do you do? Well, you know, I took a lot of therapy, <laughs> um, including this EMDR therapy, which is very helpful. What's EM EMDR? I, I don't know. It's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it's for people, Whoa. It's, uh, it simulates REM, like rapid eye movement. And that's a way you process a lot of information when you sleep. And so it's, it's useful for people who have PTSD a lot. And you know, I, I found Lydia that caused some really bad stuff, nightmares, flashbacks. And so that, this was, a, I went to this badass psychiatrist who, was like deals with soldiers who've killed people, deals with people 
that have been tortured, people that have been sexually assaulted. I mean, she's, she's seen way worse than I've seen. <laughs> she's seen way worse than me. So she helped me process that stuff. But that's expensive. That's complex. Short of that, there's just what makes you happy. I like bird watching. I like hiking. I like uh, being outside. I like leaving my phone at home for three hours and unplugging. Yeah, that's so great. What I, I love about this is like you hear about things that you've never even heard of that might help that people could go seek out or, you know, bird watching. What's your favorite bird? <laughs> oh, man, that's ever changing. I got all these bird tattoos. I really like, uh, man, my favorite bird. Well, listen, I'm an owl guy. I love owls. I feel like anytime you see an owl, it's like a holy experience. And this this year was the uh, snowy owls. was like there was a huge number of snowy owls that migrated into the U.S. in like record numbers. Oh, wow. In, in areas they weren't seen, including Colorado. So I saw one, and that was just like ridiculous. It's, it's, bird watching is like a treasure hunt. And like when a bird blows into a territory that it shouldn't be in or it gets off course, like the bird nerds like me flock to it. And it's just like such a cool thing because you never get, you see a snowy owl in Colorado every 20 years. And like I saw, wow. you know. That's amazing. It's cool. You know, I'm not a bird watcher, but I agree about owls seeing one as a holy experience. I had uh, this wild experience a few years ago where I had just finished doing an intervention with addiction with someone who I really loved and uh, immediately I walked outside and a great horned owl landed in a tree wow. like right in front of me and like flipped around and those things have a wingspan of like six feet oh man I've never seen anything like it in my life and it was like my it lands like a B-52 bomber it just like comes in I, I remember I was jogging around a park with my wife in the dark it was the night Leonard Cohen died and we were just like sad about that and like, uh, we just saw this owl land in a tree and I was just like, that's, that's Leonard Cohen. Like, I just, I just said to my wife that and like, who knows, but you just remember your owl sightings. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, it's, it's cool to remember, you know, those things are out there and the universe is sort of magical sometimes and there's beauty in it and to look for it. Right. Yeah. And like, I travel a lot for work and there's birds are different everywhere and so it's just like you set up a just get to know the birds in your neighborhood. You like and and then you branch out. It's it's cool. I I, I really enjoy it. But you know, find that thing. Find that thing that intrigues you. If it's live music, go start seeing like new bands you haven't heard of. Like just get obsessed with something else besides yourself because that's what depression often is. Besides, besides, depression is a mental illness, but. You know, when we were trying to pull Lydia out of it, she loved going to concerts. She loved going to comedy. Obviously, it wasn't enough, but I would try to take her to the things she enjoyed. Yeah, and I mean, I think that what's important about that is, one, even though it's an illness, it does have an architecture you can recognize. If you're thinking about too much about yourself, that's a warning sign. And two, even if it's the worst case scenario, which it was for Lydia, unfortunately, like... At least she laughed more than she otherwise would have by doing more things that she loved, right? A hundred percent. And like she was so, you know, she hid a lot of her darkness, but man, she was so damn funny. And so as she kind of got towards the end, and we're all caustic, dark, funny people. So she was coming with just like the darkest stuff. And I, I loved it. It was, she was funny all the way. Yeah, just go after the things that, you know, make it that much better. Make you smile, make you laugh. 
you know, any of us, whether it's mental illness or something else that gets us, you know, we don't know if we're going to have another day. So we might as well go for it. And the world's so interesting. And I've like started to like realize, you know, when you someone close to you dies, you can't help but be keenly aware of how fleeting it is and how like lucky we are to even have be it 28 years or 75 years. So it's like, go to a, save up money, go to another city, like just check it out, see as much as you can. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you're going into your third season of this show. You know, six years has gone by. You know, with the death in the family, it never really goes away. But what, where, where does it stand now in your life? It's still hard. You know, it was like yesterday was Lydia's birthday, and uh, those and July is always hard. She died a week later. You know, so like there's these two big Lydia remembrances in July. But like my older sister called me yesterday, and she's like, "Want to hang out?" And I was like, "Yeah." And we just hung out for a little bit, and we didn't even talk about it all that much um, till the end of the conversation. But you know, it's always there. It was. It's. It's. But year six, for some reason, this was easier than the last couple of years, and I haven't really like gotten too depressed. I don't know, just time, you know. Yeah, nothing lasts. Well, you know, some things are final and last forever, but you know, the, the feeling of how it is is going to change. It's going to change, and it's sort of sad in a new way when it doesn't hit you as hard as it did last year. You're like, well, what's that say about me? But it's like nothing. You're just growing older, and you're more used to it. But it is. It's never the same. <laughs> you know, obviously, I think reading your book, you know, what was really moving to me was, you know, there's so much stigma around mental illness in general, addiction, all these things, people who have it that, you know, people have this sort of fatalistic view. And, um, you know, it just really painted this portrait of someone who, you know, was worth going the extra mile for, was worth trying to save was worth trying to make laugh you know I, I feel like in our society we don't always do a good job of taking care of people with mental illness and uh you know they don't have the same amount of like insurance coverage or services or even like research going into it how like what are your thoughts on that oh yeah i mean i i can't i agree with you and i think it's heartbreaking and you know it's not like the current administration is going to do a damn thing even though they need mental health more than anything but uh, I, 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 my family is well-to-do. My dad's a very successful civil rights attorney. Like, we have money. And we couldn't deal with this. I can't imagine being, you know, homeless or not having any resources. It's heartbreaking. That's why I try to do stuff with the Mental Health Center of Denver because they have, you know, a sliding pay scale thing. And there are, peop- there are resources out there, but it's not nearly enough. It's terrible. I mean, I'll, I, you can donate and you can call your senators to try to like campaign more on it, but there's not nearly enough mental health in this country. I mean, I feel like I don't even know what to ask for. Uh, have you thought about it? Like, if you, you know, were the advisor to a senator or president, what would you tell them? You know, people like your sister need. I mean, you know, the it's like more health care, free free therapy, but it's like. Uh, you know, we're not we're not currently even in, close to anywhere near that. So I, I wish I had more answers about that. But I think I think it's to find the organizations in your city that do that type of thing and help them. You know, it's sort of like 
work local. Yeah, for now it has to be grassroots. Yeah, exactly. So I, I do fundraisers for the Mental Health Center of Denver. You know, that's like my approach. So cool. yeah. Yeah, one of the things I was thinking about uh, that made me sad is that at the point when you know the you know the worst thing happens, you know Lydia had you know been in treatment, been on all kinds of psychotropic drugs. Everyone who loved her knew that she was sick, and you know she was able to buy a gun. Usually we talk about you know keeping handguns out of the uh, hands of the mentally ill. You know, after there's a school shooting or something even more unspeakable. Yeah. It just reminded me, like, you know, there's tons of tragedies that you don't hear about, you know, from these issues um, that are happening every day. Well, when you were asking what I would advise my senator, I mean, like, yeah, I gun control. That's how, you know, I'm, I'm a bleeding heart lefty. It's not a, no, <laughs> it's no secret. And I, I just can't believe the access to guns. And I wonder how Lydia got the gun she got and, and if it had been harder to do, would it have been different for her? I, who knows? But the access to guns in this country is just insane. And I think we should immediately, I, I mean, that's how I'm voting. I, I'm calling myself a single, single issue voter in November and it's guns. Whoever's got the like strongest gun control stance, you got my vote. Well, yeah, I mean, if someone's really determined, of course they can do it with or without a gun, but they're, they're really efficient. You know, it feels like we're not taking very good care of people when they have, and everyone, every doctor, every person who could vouch for them knows they shouldn't be able to have a gun and they can just go get one. Um, that seems nuts. Like, who's really crazy in this situation? Is it them or us? And it feels like us, and it, that makes me sad. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's bad, dude. Politically, it's pretty bad for the mentally ill right now and for everybody <laughs> but I don't give in to despair I just I'm having a kid you know I'm, that's, I'm choosing to do that in this world so I'm trying to just fight the good fight congratulations wow thanks man we're like uh, 21 weeks so it's pretty exciting we're like halfway there yeah so the, uh, the magnificent uh, Kate and Hollins will continue into this world one more one more on the way that's, that's really cool Thanks. Maybe to take this out, you can tell us, you know, one or two more fun stories about Lydia that might make us laugh or just, you know, get a picture of what was really great about her. I mean, I don't know. I've sort of mined them all so hard. I just remember one, and this is a deeper, <laughs> this is more fucked up about me, but I remember um, when I was like a little, little kid, I did a lemonade stand. And I like, for some reason, I was just a piece of shit. I like spit in the lemonade. <laughs> I don't know why. I did it. <laughs> and uh, as a bad move. And so I remember years later, I did another lemonade stand with Lydia when she was at the age she wanted to do a lemonade stand. And I like confessed that to her. I was like, I don't know why I did that, but I did that. And it's like messed up. And she's like, yeah, it's just like process that. And then like, so we're just sitting out there as kids selling lemonade. Finally, some nice man pulls over and like, buys a cup of lemonade and drinks it and he's like hey it's really delicious and Lydia's like yeah because he didn't spit in it and I just, he's just like uh, and I just I don't know why I just remember that memory and like, he's like okay well thanks kids as he like pours the rest of the lemonade out <laughs> funny little Lydia moment that's a yeah. good one that's a good one yeah yeah I don't know you know there's shared a lot of memories in the book and some you just kind of keep private there's there there are a lot but she was she was unique yeah. You know, how, um, 
Like, how do you honor her now? Like, what, what's it like at the, your family gatherings? Like, how do you move on and also honor her legacy? It's been nice because we now talk openly about her. All of my family's dealt with it very differently, um, down to this book. I mean, my mom and my sister are very supportive of this book, but they're not looking forward to this blitzkrieg of press and having people come up to them in the supermarket and be like, I, said, I read Adam's book, I'm so sorry. You know, this is an intimate details of the most horrific thing any of us have ever experienced. And my family's kind enough to respect that as part of my mourning process. And they know on some level Adam needed to do this, so we respect that. But I worry about it being non all over the place for them. And, and they didn't necessarily ask for this. So with my family, how we do it is just differently. You know, my dad and I talk openly about it. If my sister doesn't want to talk about it, I don't push her on it. If my mom doesn't want to talk about it, I don't push her on it. And then if she does, I'm there for her. It's just kind of, it's ever shifting. It's ever evolving. But what's nice is we don't dwell on the bad stuff much anymore. None of us really talk about the end at all anymore. We've talked about it more than we ever want to. So it seems like when we bring Lydia up, it is a little bit happier. It is a little bit more in the light of like the good memories and not this like horrific end, which is, I guess, part of time passing. You sort of remember, like I was saying, hey, there was 26 of good and two of bad. And even in that two of bad, there was a lot of good. So you try to focus on that. That's that's really beautiful to hear, you know, that after some time, what emerges is, you know, you had some beautiful times together and that's what you choose to remember. And it's like, I write about it in the book as well, but it's like, it's about your belief and you can either uh, believe in an afterlife where I get to hang out with Lydia again, or you believe nothing happens, in which case your time on this planet is just infinitesimally short. Either way, what sense does it make being sad your whole life? about Lydia. You'll either see her again or you won't. So why, why worry about it here? You got the whole afterlife to worry about that. Yeah. So thank you so much for talking to you. Uh, for everyone listening, the book again is called Tragedy Plus Time by Adam Caton Holland. And, you know, I got to say, it's real talk about, you know, some real issues, including like suicide and mental illness. But if you're going to read a book about that, it might as well buy, be by a comedian because you know, it both goes to the real places it needs to, and it feels like something to celebrate, too. So I recommend it highly, and, you know, probably someone in your family or someone you know has been touched by issues like this, uh, and if you're not, definitely someone you know and care about is, so these things need to be talked about, and you need to hear these stories, so I recommend the book. Thanks. Well, thanks for having me, man. That was a, a nice discussion. I appreciate it. You know... This is the second episode in a row where birds have come up. I don't know. Maybe there's something to it. Regardless, be sure to check out our website and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd like to know what you think about life, death, birds, and everything in between. <laughs>